Unlike last week, uh, when we saw that the that the Holy One brings woe to his vineyard and exalts his branch, the chapters that we're going to look at today are a story. As we mentioned when we first started going through the book of Isaiah, it contains elements of narrative, elements of prophecy, often in poetic form, uh, some historical elements, which we see as well in this particular story. Um, so when we look at a story, we need to look for things like the location, the characters, the conflicts, the resolution, but also there are elements of prophecy here. So we're going to look for figures of speech and parallelism and some of those repeated ideas that give us a clue as to what is going on. The more times I read this story, the more fascinated I become. You have a, a, a wicked pagan king who didn't learn from the negative example of his grandfather, Uzziah, who tries to go into the temple, take on the role of a priest. God strikes him with leprosy until the day of his death. He loses his kingship, essentially. Uh, he didn't learn from his father, who, although he didn't wholeheartedly follow God, at least didn't make things worse. Uh, instead, you have Ahaz, who decides to become one of the worst kings Judah has ever seen. Sacrifices his children in fire to Molech, tears pieces off the temple to try to appease pagan kings that his failed alliances are not uh, protecting him from. Uh, he even closes the temple, and as we have been looking at in some of the Sunday school hour, Hezekiah has to undo all of the damage that his father Ahaz has done to the temple. I think when we come to this passage here in Isaiah 7, I think too often people get stuck only on the meaning of Isaiah 7, verse 14. Certainly this is a key verse. Uh, Spurgeon said, I believe, that he found it one of the most difficult verses in the Bible to try to understand the meaning of it, particularly in light of the New Testament, uh, Matthew 1, 23. But before we get into all those things, we need to look at and understand the immediate context. What is it that Isaiah is calling the people of his day to do when he says what he says in chapter 7 and 8. I think that he is saying this, you need to fear God according to his word. Fear God according to his word. We can make that much more specific as we go through the passage, but that's, I think, the big idea. See this emphasized especially in chapter 8, verse 20. To the law and to the testimony, if they, prophets, people, etc., do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn, no hope, no future. Let's begin before we get there, though, uh, with Isaiah chapter 7. The big, the big point, I think, from Isaiah 7 is that you should fear God's presence, not man's threats. Fear God's presence, not man's threats. What we tend to do is that we fear those we see and fail to trust the one we can't see. We fear those we see and fail to trust the one we can't see. Who was it that Ahaz feared? Ahaz and the people feared Rezin, king of Aram, or Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel. We see this chapter 7 and verse 1. These two kings and their armies go up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. When it says, told the king that the Arameans, the people of Syria, have camped in Ephraim, they've allied themselves together to come against you, his heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. There's some of that poetic imagery. They're so afraid, they're literally shaking. What are we going to do? What's Isaiah's response? Isaiah rebukes their fear of mere human kings. Verse 3, the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz. You and your son share Jeshub at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. And say to him, Take care and be calm. 
Have no fear, do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Ramalia. Okay? Isaiah, the Lord saves, God saves. You go out to meet Ahaz. You and your son, Shear Jashub, a remnant will return and tell the king who's preparing for siege by examining the pool to make sure they got enough water in reserve for what's going to take place. Don't fear these two kings who are coming against you. Why? Because they're like smoldering torches. They're like coals on the campfire that are about to burn out. You just leave them alone. They're out. They're done. It's over. From Ahaz's perspective, these two kings are destruction and inescapable. And what am I going to do to save myself from them? From God's perspective, he's like, they're a fire that's about to go out. Isaiah discredits or disparages their plot. What's their plot? Verse 6, Let us go up against Judah and terrorize it, make a breach in its walls, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. You are consumed with fearing that this is what's going to happen. Isaiah says, It's not going to happen. God won't let it happen. Furthermore, he uses this somewhat complicated picture by reducing the huge army and this great nation that's coming against him, two great nations, to two men. So listen to this. The head of Aram is Damascus. The head of Damascus is Rezin. The head of Ephraim is Samaria. The head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you will not believe, you surely shall not last. You shall not stand. Their plan, their plot will not stand or come to pass recognize my intervention and believe in it and trust me or you too will not stand. You will not last. You look out there and you see that army. God looks there and sees two men. Is it hard for God to stop two men and cause their armies to scatter? No. God could easily do it. Without lifting a finger, God could speak, send them on their way. And so Ahaz and the people see vast armies and God says, there's two guys you've got to worry about and they're going to be done very soon. We fear those we see and fail to trust the one that we cannot see. We also possibly behave piously in our unbelief and our fear of man. What does Isaiah say next? Well, Ben read this for us. Verse 11, Ask a sign, deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Don't ask me to do something that happens every day. Don't ask me to say, there's going to be fruit on the fruit tree. That happens all the time. Don't ask me to say, um, something normal every day that happens is going to happen. Ask me some great sign so that I can show my power. You know what's amazing about this? God is holding out this offer of a great sign to a king who from everything we read about him has devoted his entire life to turning the people away from God and abandoning himself to wickedness and idolatry. And yet God extends this offer of grace and mercy and compassion to this wicked king, not for his own sake, but I think because he's of a house and descendant of David. He extends this compassion to him. He says, ask a sign that I can be glorified in this, that I can show my power. Here's Ahaz. 
I don't want to test God. I don't want to trouble God. I don't, I don't want God to have to, you know, he's busy. He's, he's got better things to do. You know, I, 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 I just don't want to do this, Isaiah. Ahaz's whole reign has been about testing God. Listen to 2 Kings 16, 1-4. This is how Ahaz's reign is described in 2 Kings 16. Chapter 16, verse 2. He was 20 when he became king. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. He did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God as his father David had done, but he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Idolatry. He even made his son pass through the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out from before the sons of Israel. He sacrificed and burned incense on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. So what was Ahaz's life characterized by? Very clearly, ritual child sacrifice to get a pagan god Molech to do what he wanted. Most likely, also things like ritual prostitution and perverse sacrifices and all these other sorts of things based on what we know of the sort of worship that took place on the high places in the hills and under every green tree. This is the guy who's standing here before Isaiah saying, I don't want to test God. I don't want to make God upset. I don't want to trouble God. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to bother God. Do you see the hypocrisy in a statement like this? And maybe he hasn't done all these things yet to the extent that he has in the way that 2 Kings 16 summarizes them, but he certainly did not start out following God. His whole reign is characterized by going his own way. I don't want to trouble God. Isaiah rebukes his unbelief. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Notice he says my God and not your God because it's clear that Ahaz isn't following God. God is going to provide his own sign. You won't ask for one. God will be glorified and God will give you his own sign. What is it summarized as? A young woman will be with child and bear a son. She will call his name Emmanuel. Now, I said young woman and not virgin. If we translate it according to the way the word is used in the rest of the Hebrew Old Testament, it would probably be most accurate to translate it here as young woman. That being said, I'll explain further. Some of the issues that we have to work with in understanding this prophecy are, if this refers specifically to Jesus, as many would say, in what way is it a sign for Ahaz right then and there, particularly with the time-bound reference that says there's going to be a child and before the child is a certain age, these kings are going to be destroyed? So this leads us to this question, who is Emmanuel? Some people have put forth Hezekiah as an option. Why would they do this? Well, uh, 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 5 through 8 says a very interesting thing. Let me read that for you here. 2 Kings 18, verses 5 through 8 says, He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. For he clung to the Lord, he did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. 
And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went, he prospered. And he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. He defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. So here's a king who follows God, with that God is with him. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. Uh, what's the sign that God is with him? He gives him victory. He's described as a, a good king, one that is unique among all the kings of Israel to this point and going forward. That's one of the options that's put forward of who Emmanuel is. Uh, another option that I think is less clear and much less likely is that perhaps there is a woman in Ahaz's royal court, uh, one of his concubines, one of his wives, because he behaved like the pagan kings. It seems he would have probably had multiple wives and concubines. Um, or some variation on this is that there was just a, a, a particular Israelite or person of Jude, a woman of Judah that has a son and names him Emmanuel, and somehow the king hears about it and finds out about it. The problem with these two things are it seems to be odd that it would be tied to some random person who just has a kid and happens to name him this. Um, and it seems unlikely that the king would see as a great sign, here's this woman who has a child just somewhere out here in the, in the countryside, right? Another more likely option along the lines of the one of Hezekiah being an option is that it is Isaiah's son, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. So we see this, for example, Isaiah 8, 1 through 4. Um, there is this idea that he's going to be born soon, that he is going to be a sign, especially verse 4 is compelling. It says, Before the boy knows how to cry out, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Hezekiah seems to be a promising option because it says in 2 Kings, The Lord is with him. And yet, there's no record of him ever having been called Emmanuel. Mahershal Hashbaz seems to be a promising option because he's the right age and the events happen when he's the right age to match up with what it says in 8.4 as well as what it said in 8.15-16. And then, of course, the view for many commentaries and for much of church history has been that Jesus and only Jesus is the one who can and does fulfill chapter 7, verse 14, this sign for Ahaz. And the reason for that is found in Matthew chapter 1, because in Matthew 1, verse 23, it says, verse 22 and 23, Behold, this all took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. I think we need to recognize that the confusing nature of this prophecy obscures truth to the unbelieving. By which I mean, I don't think God intended to say, you refuse to have a sign, now let me give you a sign, and let's make it really clear, and then you can say, oh well, you know, God's okay with the fact that they didn't ask for a sign. This was not an opportunity for Ahaz to think that things were well between him and God. So much like Jesus did in the parables, he explained spiritual truths in a way that was unclear to people who had no interest in believing those spiritual truths, and yet they were very clear to those, like his disciples, when he, when he told them about them. I think this prophecy of Isaiah does the same thing. 
Ahaz doesn't have a framework for understanding who God's talking about. The people of Judah don't really have a framework for understanding who God is talking about. I think Isaiah knew who God was talking about, at least by the time he composes his book, because as we get into chapter 9, we see all these truths about this great one who is coming, who will be an heir of David, and who is going to be this everlasting king, and the only one who fits that description is Jesus. And yet Isaiah is very faithful to record exactly what God had revealed to him up to that point, such that when he speaks to Ahaz, he just says this is going to happen, he doesn't explain it further, Ahaz may well have been confused, but what's the truth? All of these things that are prophesied continue to take place. I think if I was going to summarize it, I would summarize it in this way. There is a sense in which Hezekiah and Isaiah's son, Mahershala Hashbaz, demonstrate the concept of Emmanuel, God with us. What do I mean by that? God is with Hezekiah and blesses the people to the extent that Hezekiah follows after him. What about Isaiah's son? God specifically appoints Isaiah and his sons to serve as signs to the people of Israel. And so, there is, and Ahaz knows Isaiah, Ahaz sees what he's doing with these signs, with his sons, and so Ahaz is going to see that, not fulfillment, but that parallel between what's happening with Isaiah's son and what happens with God's punishment of these pagan nations around them. But I think that people who have wrestled with this also recognize the truth that there is no virgin birth before the one of Christ, and that there is no sense in which... And that the, Isaiah is weaving together these ideas of the branch, Emmanuel, the, um, the light who shines in chapter 9, that's, that's fulfilled in Jesus. Matthew quotes that as well in his gospel. Isaiah is ultimately pointing to Jesus. But the judgment, the child, all of those sorts of things, there is a, a, something that Ahaz can look at in the life of Isaiah's son. There is something that the people of Judah can look at in the king Hezekiah, such that the rabbis say, was Hezekiah the Messiah? There's discussion of this in their rabbinical writings. And they say no, and then they give all these reasons for why he wasn't. Why does God do it this way? Why doesn't he just make it really, really clear? Again, I think it goes back to the point I was making a moment ago. Here you have an unbelieving king, an unbelieving people, and God's not just going to come out and reward them with clear truth in such a way that they can take credit for what God is doing. And God is setting it up in such a way that only by his power can he orchestrate the fulfillment of this thing that he says through Isaiah in the life of Jesus Christ hundreds of years later. But he does it in such a way that the people look at Isaiah's son and Hezekiah's life and the circumstances of Isaiah 7 and 8, and then when they see Jesus coming, they say, look, here's how all of these human characters in this story failed to live up to the ideal that was laid out here. Here's how they couldn't deliver. Here's how though they were signs, they died and their signs were finished. Here's how Jesus 
is different. He is truly the Messiah. He's the one that you need to look to. So Isaiah's son, both sons, he himself, serve as signs and warnings to the people of Israel. And God keeps his word about delivering them within this short span of time. Hezekiah, that we encounter later in the book of Isaiah and that we've been studying in Sunday school, he is a, an anticipation of the ministry of Christ in terms of his intercession, in terms of his obedience to God, in terms of his zeal for worshiping God the right way. But he's not the Messiah. And so, to conclude all of this, what would I say? Isaiah 7.14 is used accurately by Matthew to point to Jesus. And yet there are pictures in Ahaz's day and shortly after that also point to God fulfilling the things that he said he was going to do right then and there. We continue through chapter 7 and what do we see? Verses 17 through 25. We receive the consequences of unbelief. What does Isaiah say will happen? Despite the fact that God graciously gives a sign, and despite the fact that God keeps his word to deliver Judah from these two kings, they face God's judgment. The Lord will bring on you and your people and your father's house such days have never come since the day that Ephraim separated from Judah, the king of Assyria. Now, if you look at the punctuation there, I think it's not particularly helpful at this point. I think we, we would do well to, to visualize something like a hyphen here. He's going to bring such days that have never come since the day that this happened. What's he going to bring upon you? The king of Assyria. And then he develops that in, in the verses. So he's not saying that the king of Assyria is from Judah or is Ephraim, but he's saying, I'm going to bring something that hasn't been happened since this day. And then he says, the king of Assyria, and then he describes what that's going to look like. He uses the picture in verse 18 of the fly and the bee. Just like there's a swarm of flies or a swarm of bees uh, that sometimes shows up and just covers everything, the armies are going to come and cover everything as they devastate it. Uh, verse 20, uh, there was this idea of, of, of shaving that was sometimes associated with shame in their day. And... Um, God is going to shave them, make them bare and, and, and bald and naked captives before their enemies, verse 20. Um, it seems to be a hopeful picture almost in verses 22, 21 and 22 that a man in those days may have a, a cow and a pair of sheep and there's going to be so much milk and he's going to eat curds and curds and honey, but it's, it's basically saying like instead of having regular crops and instead of having... Uh, meat and all those sorts of things, basically the people are going to revert to almost a nomadic lifestyle because of the devastation that comes on the land. And so even though God provides for them, even in the midst of their unbelief in that judgment, there is a degree to which they have um, gone backwards in terms of their civilization, in terms of their possessions, in terms of all these things. The land is going to become essentially abandoned and covered with briars and thorns and a place for hunting instead of a place for agriculture. And uh, people will have roaming flocks of animals instead of farms and things that have been established in the days of Ahaz. So we see here that God will use a pagan nation, several pagan nations, to purge his people of idolatry. 
and that God is going to use scarcity and desolation to arrest his people's attention. And so this chapter concludes on a discouraging note. Yet we see despite the idolatry and unbelief of Ahaz, Isaiah has urged him as the Davidic ruler to fear God's presence instead of the immediate presence of his human enemies. And even though God delivers Ahaz, Ahaz and the people seem to assume their political alliances with Assyria and their demonic worship are the reason for their deliverance. Now that I'm bringing in from 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles because we don't necessarily see all of it here. I'll point you to the, the situations where we, um, the verses where we see these things explained further. What's the main point of chapter 8? Trust God's power as he fulfills his word. Don't trust man's schemes or demonic spirits. We see, first of all, that God's word will be fulfilled. We see this chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Now, I think the correlation here is that the, the, the part about there's going to be a child and he's going to be a certain age and all those sorts of things, I think we see that part in Isaiah's son here in chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. But there's also a prophetic element to this as well. Isaiah goes in a public place, writes in large letters of ordinary script so the people can read it, these words, swift, spoil, speedy, pray. He doesn't say what they're about, and I'm not sure that he 100% knows what they're going to be about, but then, nine months later, when his wife has a son, what does God tell him to name that son? The words that he wrote there. And those words that he wrote there, he has two witnesses. One was an ally of Ahaz, and the other was his father-in-law. Not people who were probably Isaiah's friends are on his side, but yet they could attest to the truth of what he'd done. They could say, here's when he wrote these things. Here's what he names his son. This is a prophetic sign. This is much like the signs we see, for example, with uh, Jeremiah. He shaves, he shaves part of his face, and this is what he does with this part of the hair and this part of the hair. He hits it with a sword. He burns this part of it. It's a prophetic picture of what God is doing. In the same way, here's this public announcement, swift, spoil, speedy prey. Then there's a child born. He gets named swift, spoil, speedy prey. Then the kings are defeated. God's word is fulfilled. We also see that God is going to punish the unbelief, even of those he had just delivered. What happens with the people of Judah? They see God's deliverance, and they try to take credit for it. Israel is going to be punished according to um, verse 5 and 6 for rejecting Shiloah, the pool in Jerusalem. They've rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloah and rejoice in resin in the son of Ramalia. Um, there's two ways we can take this. One is that it's about northern, northern tribes of Israel and they have rejected Jerusalem. They've turned away from being in Jerusalem, which is where this pool of water Isaiah alludes to is found. And so because they've rejected Jerusalem and correspondingly the worship of God, God is going to punish them. Or, and I think probably the better thing of understanding in context is that the people of Judah are rejoicing in, as in rejoicing over, the destruction of these two kings as though they were the ones who had brought it about. And acting as though they were innocent and they deserve to be delivered. But God says this is not the case. Verse 7 says, The Lord is going to bring on them the strong and abundant waters of the Euphrates, even the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise up over all its channels and go over all its banks. Then it will sweep into Judah. 
Despite their alliances, Judah would be attacked by Assyria as well. Uh, we see this, for example, in 2 Chronicles 28. Let me read that for you briefly. 2 Chronicles chapter 28, verses 19 through 21 says this, The Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had brought about a lack of restraint in Judah and was very unfaithful to the Lord. So Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came against him and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. Although Ahaz took a portion out of the house of the Lord and out of the palace of the king and of the princes and gave it to the king of Assyria, it did not help him. The defeat of, um, the initial defeat, rather, of Rezin of Syria and, and Pekah of Ramalia, the king of Israel, comes about through the Assyrians. Judah has a military alliance with the Assyrians. So it would be natural for the people of Judah to assume, we established this military alliance, our friends went and defeated our enemies, they're the reason we've been delivered. And God says, no, they're like the springtime flood when the river overflows its banks. You think you're fine? You're not anywhere close to far enough away from their destruction. You think they're going to stop with Syria and with northern Israel? No, they're coming after you next. Why? Because of your pride, because of the rejection of God to arrest your attention. And so this is what takes place. So instead, God urges Isaiah this. God alone is to be feared and his word to be believed. We saw this uh, in verses 16 through 22, but let's start with verse 12. What does God instruct Isaiah to do? You are not to walk in the ways of this people. You are not to say a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy. You are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you shall regard as holy. He shall be your fear. He shall be your dread. Then he shall become a sanctuary. But to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over them. Then they will fall and be broken. They will even be snared and caught. There will be a temptation for Isaiah to get caught up in all the fearful mutterings of the people of Israel. They were basically saying, uh, there's some conspiracy going on. Is it with the Assyrians? Is it with the people of Egypt? Is it with um, uh, Syria? Is it with the northern tribes of Israel? Who's going to deliver us? How is this going to be worked out? Maybe it's going to be this person. Maybe it's going to be that person. Maybe it's going to be this thing over here. And there's all this agitation and fear and, and anguish. And God says to Isaiah, you know what's going to happen. I've told you what's going to happen. Don't get caught up in their conspiracies and in their fears. Who do you need to worry about? Not those kings over there. Not all the things that people are worked up about. You need to worry about God. Fear Him. God then is pictured as a sanctuary. Much like the ark served as a refuge for Noah and his family when the flood came, when this figurative flood of armies was going to come over the land, God was going to be the rock, the sanctuary, the safe place for the people who are believing in Him like Isaiah and his family and perhaps a handful of others in the land of Judah. But for the rest of the people, they had no sanctuary. They were facing God's judgment. Isaiah was also supposed to look to the fulfillment of God's promises. 
We see this in the section that Ben read for us, verses 16 through 22, where he says, bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. I think there's an idea of the preservation of God's word. I think a parallel would be what happens in Jeremiah. Remember, he makes the scroll and the king's scribe cuts it in pieces and burns it and he has to write it out again. I think there's a, a degree of threat from Ahaz and others trying to silence God's word. God's saying, keep track of it, preserve it, make sure the people know it, the faithful who will listen to it. There is a, an anticipation of waiting for God's favor to turn again toward his people. Verse 17, I will wait for the Lord. I will even look eagerly for him, despite the fact in the middle of the verse it says he's hiding his face from the house of Jacob. What was Isaiah's job? Be faithful to God and wait for his deliverance. Not become fearful and agitated and go his own way and make his own plans like the king and the people were doing. He was supposed to fear God. He was supposed to wait for God to work. And in the meantime, he had work to do. He was to be signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion, verse 18. What did that look like? We'll talk more about that in a moment. But, but they're a picture of what God is going to do. You have the Father, God saves. You have the first son, a remnant returns. Uh, we saw this also in chapter 6, verse 13. You have... Uh, the second son, swift judgment, or swift spoil, speedy prey. Their very names, when they're saying them day by day, are a reminder of the people of what God wants them to remember. God saves. God's going to preserve a remnant. God's going to judge your enemies. Think about what that would be like. Like every time someone said your name, it's reminding people about what God is doing. That that's their job. That's what they were supposed to do. What else does God warn Isaiah about? Unlike the people who practice rampant idolatry, Isaiah is supposed to urge them to return to God's word. What do the people say? Go talk to the mediums. Go talk to the spiritists. They'll figure it out for you. They'll help you. What, is, what does Isaiah say? To the law and to the testimony. God's word, not the foolish mutterings of pagans and the foolish schemes of people. Because if they rejected God's word, they had no hope for the future. There would be no dawn. Verse 20. We see this more in the beginning of chapter 9, but verses 21 and 22 basically says, those who persist in idolatry have no hope for the future. And ironically, this verse is applied by Matthew to point not to Israelites to have hope in their Messiah, but for Gentiles, the people that the Israelites despised, probably some of the descendants of the, even the people who are coming to conquer them and dwell in their land as God's punishment, some of them are the ones who are going to see the dawning of light, as we'll see in chapter 9, in the birth of Christ, come to salvation, all of those sorts of things. And so we see the glory of God's plan unfolding, even in this, this picture of darkness and gloom at the end of the chapter. Isaiah 7 and 8 have two main audiences. Those facing God's judgment and those like Isaiah for whom God would become a sanctuary as that judgment crashed down on the unbelieving people. Who faces God's judgment according to these two chapters? In chapter 7, primarily a wicked king. And then chapter 8, primarily a wicked people. The one was directed more toward the king, the other more toward the people. But both are wicked, both are rejecting God, both deserve his judgment. God's judgment, however, didn't stop in Ahaz's day. 
So I think we need to ask ourselves, what's the test if you're like Ahaz in chapter 7? Afraid of the threat of disaster that you deserve for doing exactly what God said not to, doing it openly and potentially dragging other people into the same sin. We're not exact parallels to Ahaz, but there are points in our lives at which there can be a lot of parallels. We need to be aware of those. Here's the test, I think, of whether we're acting like Ahaz. Can you, at the same time or in a short space of time, act pious? I don't want to test God. Well, at the same uh, and, and, and what does that look like? For us, it would be, you know, I'm a, I'm a good Christian. I sing hymns, I lead in prayer, I give a testimony, I do an act of service, I'm generous toward people who have needs, whatever it might be. And then you turn around, and either when you're not around people at church, or, or at various points, maybe you try to hide it, maybe you don't try to hide it, you do some of these kinds of things. You gossip, you act out of lust, you act out of greed, you seek the praise of people instead of God, you complain, you yell at your family, you just do things that please yourself instead of God. These are all things that you know God hates and says are sinful and wrong. It is possible, like Ahaz, to say, I'm a good follower of God. I don't want to test God. And our lives are full of wickedness even for people who are professing Christians. Now, here's the tension. Um, you know, Ahaz said, I won't test God, but his whole life was testing God and pushing the boundaries of God's patience and mercy. We often say, I love God, but if we turn around and do things God hates, our words are a lie no matter how often we say them or who else we can deceive. Ahaz was an unbeliever, and this is where the difference comes in. Ahaz was an unbeliever, I think, clearly. I think it's possible, however, though, for people who are genuinely believers to, for some point of time, some period of time, behave like Ahaz, which is why Paul has such harsh words of rebuke, for example, for the Corinthians. You know Jesus, but you're living like you don't. Stop it. Here's what you need to do instead. Here's how God needs to work in your life and change your life. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying you will lose your salvation if you behave like Ahaz did, hypocritically, I don't want to test God, I'm a good follower of God, but doing all these sinful, wicked things. I'm not saying you will lose your salvation, because that's secure in Christ. I'm not saying God will immediately strike you down if you live this way, even potentially for an extended period of time, if you test him in this way. For example, he let Ahaz live a long time and do quite a lot of wickedness. But if you do test God, outwardly pious, inwardly wicked, don't think that God is pleased and he will let it slide forever. God's goal, as we know from all of Scripture, is to make his people holy and he will go to whatever lengths necessary to put the old self out of you and conform you to the image of his son, including in the days of his people, sending pagan nations to wipe them out, many of them, so the remnant would turn back to God and believe. And in our day, God could bring all sorts of things into our lives to do whatever he needs to do to purify our hearts before him. And so that's, I think, the warning that we get from Isaiah chapter 7. What's the warning from Isaiah chapter 8? How do you know if you're behaving like the wicked people that Isaiah talks to in chapter 8? I think it's this. If God delivers you from some disaster, like he delivered the people from the threat of these two kings, do you pat yourself on the back as though it was your doing? 
And in their case, as though that then lets you off the hook for secretly or openly trusting in schemes and pagan superstitions to make life work for you. Well, what does this look like? Let's talk about schemes and conspiracies. Let's evaluate, for example, what's going to keep coming up in the next nine months of this year until the elections. Lots of discussions about COVID and lots of discussions about American politics. Okay? I am pretty certain that some of you are probably still hung up and arguing about COVID and politics with people online or with people you encounter or with people you work with or people in your family. I am also certain because I've been here at various points too and a lot of professing Christians are at this point from what I can tell that you're probably more concerned about vaccine or mask mandates and spent more time worrying about those things, talking about those things, thinking about those things, than you have meditating on God's word or witnessing to people who need to hear about Jesus. Sometimes maybe we've even gotten that person all riled up that that we know, talking about politics, and then we turn around and be like, and you need to trust in Jesus, and we wonder why they don't want to talk to us about it. And the reality is, if that's your experience, you're not alone. Lots of professing Christians between now and November are going to be wasting a lot of time trying to get the right person in office, hoping that will put things back to the way they were two years ago, 20 years ago, 100 years ago, whatever length of time we're talking about. It won't work. Braden just did a paper on um, one of the presidents who was during the time of Prohibition. How effective was Prohibition? It wasn't. They rolled it back. People tried to fix a societal problem by making a law, and it didn't work. Uh, it didn't work when people abandoned good theology for a social gospel of cleaning, of cleaning up cities uh, instead of pointing people to Jesus. It didn't work in all the times, times it's been tried since the whole moral majority effort in the 1970s. What will fix our world is Jesus reigning as king, not arguing about conspiracies about who broke it, not getting a human leader in, who even in the best of human leaders like Hezekiah still fails. We're going to see that in Sunday school next week. Hezekiah goes through almost all his life, does great, and then at the end, he trusts in this pagan king, shows him all the treasures. God says all these things are going to be carried away, and under your children's time, they're going to face destruction, children and grandchildren's time. Hezekiah had such promise, and he almost got there, but he was not the perfect leader. And oftentimes, we get leaders that are far worse, leaders like Ahaz. So what's my admonition along these lines? The people of, of Isaiah's day, they were having arguments about what's going to happen with these two kings, and what's about this thing, what's about that thing, and what about the other thing, and what are we doing? We're talking about masks and vaccines and China and Russia and all these other sorts of things, and I'm not saying it's wrong to ever think about them. I'm just saying... Stop arguing about politics with people online. Don't make that your primary topic of conversation with people that you encounter throughout the day. For that matter, I think what a lot of us need to do is stop arguing with people online in general or wasting so much time with TV and the internet and all of these sorts of things. We need to get off devices and go talk to people about Jesus, whether that be encouraging a fellow believer or talking to someone who's never heard of him. And I'm preaching to myself, too, because there are so many things that suck up so much of our time. There was a, a discussion, even some, I'm convinced both of them are Christians, 
my name got mentioned. It's people you wouldn't know. It was a discussion about marriage, and then our situation got brought up, and then it was a question of, like, how does that tie into what a marriage looks like and all that sort of thing? And there was a part of me that's like, all right, I've got to have this really good response about, about you know, my take on it, because they're, you know, they're talking about me. Really, it does not matter. I am probably not going to see either of those people, because one of them lives in another state, and one of them's at another church an hour away. I'm not going to see either of those people in the next six months. You know who I need to spend my time ministering to? I need to spend my time ministering to you guys, to my kids, to my wife, to people that God brings in my life who are right here around me. But we're in a society that says, don't worry about all that. You can have friends 5,000 miles away and ignore the people who are sitting right next to you. And we can get caught up in issues like like politics, uh, personal ideas about all sorts of other things. And we're going to be very tempted to be drawn into that in the next, you know, seven to nine months as all this election stuff heats up. Resist the temptation. Focus on what God has called us to do. You want to go work the polls? You want to advocate for a candidate? Fine. But you better be spending at least as much time in serving in the church, in meditating on scripture, in doing God's work to the people around you, because that's the stuff that's really going to matter. Politicians come and go. Laws get changed very easily. Empires rise and fall. God's work will last. Let's talk about another area that I've been thinking about a lot since Maggie got sick and got better since the whole thing with COVID and since now with Kelly's sickness. How do we ensure health and safety? A lot of people in our society are concerned about that. In Isaiah's day, people chased after necromancers who talked to the dead and spiritists who consorted with demons. They thought that was going to give them insight on how to orchestrate their lives in a way to protect themselves and be blessed, have lots of children, have lots of wealth, um, all of these kinds of things. Today, the path to health and safety takes many forms. For some, it's getting the supposedly perfect combination of vaccine shots and doctor visits, listening to public health advice. That will keep you safe. For others, it's eating the right kinds of foods, getting the right combination of supplements, exercising a certain way. For some, it's staying on the good side of pagan acquaintances. Uh, For others, it's taking a pagan approach to asking God for health and wealth. Pray this prayer with this name of God. Visualize it happening. Um, For some, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. Whatever it might be, we think if we do this thing or this combination of things that we can prevent any bad stuff from coming into our lives. And the reality is that we cannot. Okay? We think we'll be safe. We think that if we do get sick, we'll get better. If some difficulty comes into our life, our safety net will catch us. Let me just speak to you very honestly for a moment. I probably somewhat arrogantly thought, well, even if the hospital can't fix Kelly, we can try this, that, or the other thing, and it'll, it, maybe it'll work out okay. Uh, In the course of my life up to now, I've often found myself trusting this idea of my own safety net. Here's insurance in case my car gets damaged or something gets broken in my house. Here's savings in case some crisis comes up. Here's good relationships with people around me in case I need help. There's people that I can turn to. Like I said at the beginning of the service, barring a miracle, Kelly's not going to get better. Those relationships that I thought I had figured out with, 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 uh, with relatives or neighbors or people I've worked with on projects around the city, um, they can be great one day um, and then just go on the next for no apparent reason. 
The money that you and I save could be taken by the government someday if we disagree with their policies. It could be uh, eaten away by inflation in the near future. It could be, you know, whatever. We could have some massive expense that comes up and wipes out everything that we've saved to try to take care of ourselves through the future. And so all these things that at least I personally feel like I've trusted in sometimes, my intelligence or good planning or being a nice guy, they haven't saved me from heartbreaker trials, particularly in the last four years. And only God has helped through that, and only as God is going to help me get through this one and any future ones. And so here's the application I was thinking for me, and you think about how it compares for you. If I pat myself on the back for some great deliverance, or even some small deliverance, things like Maggie getting better, God meeting financial needs, catching COVID and not dying of it, I'm like the people of Judah, especially if I were to congratulate myself for an apparent success while living in pride or greed or lust or whatever other sins I've decided I don't need to worry about killing because I'm comfortable with them. If that were the case, God helps me. I take credit for it. I say, I don't need to worry about dealing with these areas of sin in my life because it all worked out okay. That's exactly what was going on with the people of Judah. The same would be true for us. Being blind to God's mercy and giving a good gift that we didn't deserve, taking credit for it and thinking we can just keep going the way we're going, everything will be fine because it's been fine up to this point. Don't take credit for the good gifts God gives you. They are not your doing, they are His. And especially don't take credit for the ways that God delivers you if you are cherishing sin in your heart because that is the sort of hypocrisy that Isaiah is condemning the people of Judah and King Ahaz for. But let me close with the hope in this passage. Mostly it's about judgment, but there are brief glimpses of hope. It's the promise of Emmanuel, God with us. Not fulfilled as we saw until Jesus comes, really, but we'll learn more about him in Isaiah 9. The promise of God's future work, even in the names of Isaiah himself and his children. So let me ask you this. Will your life be a sign and a wonder to the people around you as the lives of Isaiah and his sons were? The only way that that will be true is if you fear God according to his word. When we reject sin and stand confidently in God's presence open up to us through Jesus, we don't have to fear all the things that are coming around us. Because the one thing that matters most has been dealt with by God. And if we have a relationship with him, nothing can separate us from his love. So you don't have to worry about the threats of pagan nations invoid, uh, invading. You don't have to worry about what if I end up penniless and homeless someday. You don't have to worry about the what if my health is taken away and I die young or my family, something happens to them and I'm alone for much of my life. We don't have to fear all of those things if we have Jesus and if we have access to God the Father through him. That was the confidence that Isaiah was urging Ahaz to have, but unfortunately, sadly, tragically, Ahaz was so stubbornly tied up in his own idolatry, he was unwilling to see the confidence that God brings, and he kept trusting himself. In his, toward the end of his life, he's still building altars to pagan gods whose peoples were defeated in hopes that they're going to deliver him. And he dies rejecting God. 
But we don't have to do that. We can trust in God through Jesus and have strong confidence. We can also rest in Jesus, as I think God urged Isaiah to do, as a rock, a defense, a sanctuary. Think about Jesus' words in Matthew 21. I am the chief cornerstone, but also a stumbling block for those who reject me. And so the question is not, is Jesus this strong rock tower defense? The question is, is he encircling you to care for you because you're one of his people, or are you falling from the cliffs overhead on him and being destroyed in unbelief? Jesus doesn't change. What changes is whether we're related to him or not. Jesus is the rock and defense who will fill all of God's promises in God's time, and we need to rest in him. So fear God according to his word. Reject sin and stand confidently in the access you have through Jesus. Rest in Jesus as you wait for God to fulfill his promises and faithfully live as a sign and a testimony to the people around you like Isaiah and his family did. Let's pray. Dear God, this is a hard passage. My efforts fall short at explaining it clearly. But Lord, may we get the main points of this. We are to fear you. We are to trust your word. And all these things are summed up in Christ. We have the great privilege of being related to him through faith, according to your grace, to serve you as we wait for your Son from heaven, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. But that wrath is coming on unbelief. And so, Lord, may we not be unbelieving. Whatever the people around us think of us, may we not in our inmost heart be unbelieving, be loving sin, be going our own way. Because ultimately, you're the one who's going to assess and evaluate us. You're the one who knows our every thought and action and word. May we fear you. May we rest in you. Not fearing people. Not resting in idolatry self-reliance, all of the things that we easily resort to naturally and, and wickedly. Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.